What's up, Rail Split Nation? We're back with another episode. We'll be talking about the transition. Great to be back. So hopefully you're all having a you know a great day here as you're listening to this. We're getting some you know Lincoln Christmas shopping out of the way. Make sure you go check out our uh, little shop. You know, get some rail splitter gear for your um, Lincoln friend or family member. But that's not why we're here. It's not to sell merch. Um, it's to talk Lincoln, and that's what we're going to do. And with me are my two buds, my two Lincoln buds, and rail split nation. Uh, we, we we got the doctor in the building. Doctor, Dr. Boyce, what's happening? Oh, man, I am so impressed because when we signed on to this meet, you were like barely awake, and then you just hosted with the most energy I've ever seen you host with. Yes. So yes. I am so – my excitement for this episode just quadrupled based on your hosting energy, Nick, and I appreciate it. Yep, I got that light switch. I got used to uh, doing Google Meets with the students uh, every period, trying to bring that energy. So, um, just swearing under your breath, and then you flip it on, and it's like <laughs> showtime, all kinds of energy. That's a confession right, of every teacher, by the way. That's how we. That's how we roll, typically daily, anyway. It's like you don't want to wrestle tonight, but then, damn, your theme music hits, the glass breaks, and you go out there to open up a can of whoop ass. Speaking of open up a can of whoop ass, you know, up north. <laughs> We got Rail Splitter Mary. What happening? Hey, Rail Split Nash. What's up? Not much. How you guys doing? Been about uh, two weeks. We're we're kind of this bi-weekly schedule since me and boys are in the hellhole of remote learning right now. I've had my first snow day. Dude, that's amazing because we haven't got a, a substantial snow yet down I... here in uh, the rock. Rock Vegas, I like to call it. Yeah. I am... Um... I went outside on Tuesday morning and it was, I was like, I'm not going to make it to work, but I'm going to say I tried and cleaned four inches of snow, wet, heavy snow off my car and then drove to the outskirts of town and looked at the highway and was like, nope. Four inches of snow gets you a snow day in Canada. It kept falling, Nick. (laughs) It was, that's weak. It was a storm. It was a snowstorm. Total snow accumulation. I need to know. Total, probably eight inches, maybe a little more. It was a lot of snow. All right, I'll give you, I'll let you slide with eight inches. That sounds substantial, okay. so I apologize. Real Split Nation, I still have respect for the Canadians. I did not lose it. I might be uh, Montreal those Canadian. numbers to a McClellan kind of standard. I don't know. I'm not good with converting centimeters to inches, so. Well, that's crazy. Yeah, you guys probably get all your snowfalls in centimeters, don't you? Yeah, we do. You guys use such an inferior measuring system compared to us Americans. Thank you. That's why that's why we're exceptional. We're exceptional when it comes to that and racking up COVID cases, baby. Hey, so we're um, Ontario. So, <laughs> but that's not why we're here. We're here to take your mind off the COVID pandemic. And today we are going to discuss and talk about the transition. Um, right now, we are seeing, obviously, we know we got President-elect Biden, and he is starting the transition into the White House. So definitely substantially a smaller time than what Lincoln had to wait from going from President Buchanan to him. 
So that's kind of what we're going to dive into today, to today, talking about the transition um, and kind of what Lincoln, what happened and what Lincoln kind of came into. So I think there's some parallels. I'm sure we will bring up the current transition that's going on in America right now. Um, definitely. So, all right, who's starting this? Throw it to Mary. You got master show notes, I know. All right. Well, I guess we start. So the the transition that we're talking about is President James Buchanan to Abraham Lincoln. So I think it best if we start by talking a little about who President James Buchanan was. Oh, I couldn't th- agree more. That's what I did in my <laughs> notes Because he's so well. exciting, so, right? <laughs> James Buchanan, baby. Dude, you know what? It's good to be a James Buchanan fan the last four years because, you know what? Now he's he ain't not the worst the bottom. You ain't sniffing the bottom anymore. <laughs> what about Fillmore? You know, Fillmore wasn't quite at the bottom, but damn it. You know, Fillmore's happy. Yeah, anybody who goes below him, he's going to be happy. So. Buchanan's a happy man now. He's not the worst yeah. president of the United States, or rated that anyway, yeah. which is what most scholars rate him as. I almost feel if we mentioned Fillmore again, it's got to be in a positive note, right? So, because mm, it's the... Is that possible for you? No. Okay. Um, but yeah. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go <laughs> no, ahead, Mary. No, it's okay. So James Buchanan was born in 1791 in a log cabin in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania, and his family eventually moved to Mercersburg, where he was part. He his family was like the wealthiest family there. Um, his father was a merchant, farmer, and real estate in, investor, and he attends a college in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and he's nearly expelled for bad behavior, um, but apparently he. Uh, <laughs> smartens up and he gets a second chance and he graduates with honors. Um, and he's a lawyer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he's part of the Federalist Party. So he's part, he's also part of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and he supported politically funded internal improvements, um, high tariffs, national bank, and he's a strong critic of the Democratic Republican President James Madison during the War of 1812. He's also a Freemason, which many men are at that time. Um, when the British invaded Maryland in 1814, um, he served in the defense of Baltimore as a private in Henry Shippen's company, which was the 1st Brigade, the 4th Division of the Pennsylvania Militia. He's the only president with military experience who was not an officer, and he was also the last president who served in the War of 1812. In 1820, he is elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. He's a supporter of Andrew Jackson, and this will not come as a surprise to anybody. He's also a supporter of states' rights. Um, he is an ambassador to Russia when re-elect- when, um, when Jackson was re-elected in 1832, and he's in this role for 18 months. He serves as a senator from 1834 to 1845. And under President Polk, he is Secretary of State. And U.S. territory doubled in this time. So it looks like he does get stuff accomplished, which is not to say much about his presidency, which is not like that. He doesn't get too much accomplished in that. Um, Which is kind of shocking because he comes in with quite the resume. Yeah, he does. Um, He's got a really good resume. Yeah. I mean, as far as presidential candidates go, I mean, this is a guy... State legislator, both houses, um, and you know, both the House and the Senate, Secretary of State, mm-hmm. ambassadorships. I mean, this dude, mm-hmm. 
looking good too. He was one of the, he was pretty old too. Wasn't he sixty five? I don't know if you were getting there, so I apologize. Oh no, were. no, no! I actually didn't have the. I, you so. know what? If you've got his age, let us know. <laughs> I believe he was sixty five, which makes him definitely one of the older presidents. And yeah. um, right there, so yeah, definitely a resume. Definitely much more of a substantial resume than Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. as far as well, yeah. as far as politics go, he. He may be the most qualified as far as experience goes of any president. I mean, he was an ambassador to Russia in addition to Secretary of State, state legislator, House of Representatives, you know, multiple terms in the Senate. Like, you know, very much a, a qualified, you know, as far as experience goes, um, politician, um, which, of course, didn't translate to us in the executive branch by any means. Uh, but still, it's, it's worth, you know, kind of pointing out. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a very interesting little tidbit: that election, 1856, was the only election in which Miller Fillmore, who was a president, earned any electoral votes. He actually did win the state of Maryland. Um, so he had some electoral votes in this election. He obviously had, you know, risen to the presidency um, as vice president for Tyler, and then um, did not win his party's nomination in two. Nick just died a, a little bit inside. What a joke that guy is. <laughs> if the ghost of Fillmore is living and listening, you're a joke. You're a joke. How is a ghost living? Hey, how does Yoda come back in Last Jedi? How does Luke come back in, uh, you know, Obi-Wan, Anakin, all of them? Yeah, Force Ghost. <laughs> Spoken from the guy yeah, drinking yeah. from the Darth Vader mug. With the Jedi hood. Yep. I don't know if a Suze shirt counts as Jedi um, <laughs> wear. So this is a little throwback to the greatest bar in the Rockford area, right? It's pretty darn good. Nice. <laughs> a little dive bar for y'all. Nice. <laughs> All right, Mary, back to you. All right. So, yeah, he's, as Nick said, he's got quite an impressive resume as he comes into being the 15th president of the United States. Um so during the 1856 Democratic National Convention, the platform met, met with Buchanan's beliefs, which were support for the fugitive state law, anti-slavery um, agitation. And in the election, he faced off with Nick's favorite, Millard Fillmore, and John C. Fremont, the Republican. Uh, for- like Fillmore wasn't even competition. Let's be honest. It I was know. really Fremont. Come on. <laughs> um, so 45% of the popular vote is taken by Buchanan and he carried every slave state except Maryland along with five free states, including his home state of Pennsylvania. Um, And there's something interesting behind that, which I'm sure we'll get to um, in a little bit. Um, John C. Breckinridge was his vice president. John C. Breckinridge will later go on to fight in the Western theater of the civil war, um, notably at the battle of Chickamauga and um, as well as battles for Chattanooga. Um, In his victory speech, Buchanan said the Republicans were a dangerous and geographical party that unfairly attacked the South. And he said, the object of my administration will be to destroy sectional party north or south and to restore harmony to the union under a national and conservative government. So when I read that, I already started drawing parallels to the current administration that is leaving the White House. I definitely saw, I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of like history repeating itself. Um, at his... Yeah, I, I agree, Mary. And I think one of the things that jumped out at me, we, we the whole 
point of us doing this episode was like, you know, they had a lousy transition and we're currently in a lousy transition. But like, I was really struck by like, it's that's not the only similarity. It's not that they both were just not great. Like, they're not great for very similar, in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also, just real, real quick, I did a little fact, quick fact check. James Buchanan, when he uh, sworn in, was the second oldest president, and he remains the fourth oldest ever at his uh, inauguration. The, the oldest at the time was William Henry Harrison. Since then, uh, Reagan and Trump were older, so Buchanan's on his way to being fifth, fifth uh, oldest president. Um, and real quick. Anybody want to guess who the fourth youngest one at 46 years old? Obama. Lincoln. Kennedy. No. Kennedy is number two. Obama's number five. Oh. Number four. Let's um, ask Grant. Grant. It's Grant. <laughs> I was going to say oh. one of the Civil War ones. I was going to say Garfield. Yeah. But Grant, this is so getting off topic. But Grant, this is a pretty good testament just how young he was during the Civil War because. He had to go through Johnson's entire term before he even ran, and he still was only 46. Wow. So crazy, yeah. That is, yeah, that is interesting. And he died at 63. But as the host, I'm going to put this puppy back on the rails. So we're going to throw <laughs> it back to Mary. Uh, so at Buchanan's inauguration, <laughs> at, at his inauguration, he said, he said Congress should play no role in determining the status of slavery in states or territories. So again, this goes back to his um, belief in states' rights. Um, he had popular, I think he had popular sovereignty support as well. Um, he recommended a federal slave code be enacted to protect the rights of the slave owners in federal territories. And he said he would avoid corruption, but <laughs> soon after it was like, this is what would, Ted Widmer writes in his book, Lincoln on the Verge. He said, soon after it was reported that enormous sums of money had been spent to bribe election officials in Indiana and Pennsylvania. They offered no bid contracts to their cronies. They rewarded political supporters with no experience. They outsourced government printing contracts for profit, and they participated enthusiastically in gluttonous feeding that Washington's ecosystem encouraged. Um, and the cabinet was that he chose was very southern le- leaning, and he chose men who argued agree or agreed with his views. So it's not like I don't think he's cho- he's not at all choosing his cabinet the way that Lincoln did. Uh, Buchanan is choosing so he's choosing southerners, but he's picking northerners. But he's picking northerners that are referred to as doe faces. I think is the term where they are mm-hmm. southern leaning and they are supportive of southern rights. So we can quickly see where, where this cabinet is headed and how yeah. it's going to go for the transition of power when it comes to Lincoln getting elected in 1860. Bukes was straight up a dough boy or dough face. Oh, absolutely. Did you just call him Bukes? Bukes. Bukes. I, thought I like it. it. Oh my God. That's perfect. Bukes. You damn dough face. You <laughs> Bukes bitch. I don't know. <laughs> Bukes bitch. Jeez. All right. Okay, that was a little far. All right, I'm, I'm off the rails as the host. We're getting back on. All right, so he is rated as one of the worst presidents, as we already mentioned. And uh, George Templeton Strong, I had to throw this in there. Um, George Templeton Strong, was uh, he was a man who lived in New York, and he was a very prolific writer. He refers to Buchanan as being an old mollusk. Yikes. 
wipe the insult. So here's my theory slash episode idea. Think about this succession of three presidents. You go Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan. If it weren't for those three and their ineptitude, we may not be talking. We, this podcast may not exist. Abraham Lincoln, you know what I mean? Like the situation was what it was in 1860 because not because Buchanan was awful, but because Buchanan was awful, who followed Pierce, who was awful, who followed Fillmore, who was awful. Like, you know, this, you know, the, these one, these the series of one term kind of forgotten mid 19th century presidents. Yeah. Really, um, by taking a back seat to everything and really limiting the power of the executive branch and doing next to nothing, mm-hmm. set the stage for Lincoln, you know, well, really set the stage for the secession and civil war, which set the stage for Lincoln's greatness. So, yeah, I, you know, maybe maybe we can get a little deeper into just how those three led into Lincoln's presence. But it was really, really some weak, weak sauce out of those three, for sure. It absolutely was. I think that's a great episode idea, actually. That might be the worst run of three presidents. It's got to be the worst run of three presidents, hands down. That is. Well, and you have to look at the, the like the political situation in the country at the time, too, right? Yeah. Like you're... You're yeah. barreling towards civil war, and you have to wonder if their politics just kind of like it just kept going and going and going with each one of them, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I, and I'm sorry, I'm stuck on mixed. I'm trying to think of three poor presidents in a row um, that were really Coolidge. Good. Yeah, Coolidge, Harding, Hoover, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. Maybe, probably not though. Um, I mean, they're, they're up there. I don't know. Harding, super corrupt. Hoover, terrible. Coolidge kind of set the stage for Hoover to be terrible. Anyway, once again, I digress and I'll leave it to Nick to bring us back. (laughs) All right, back on the rails. Get this choo-choo train on the rails. (laughs) So during, during Buchanan's administration, um, he actually goes through, um, bleeding Kansas, which, we all know what that is. John Brown is involved in that. And if anybody has not checked out the TV series, good Lord bird with uh, Ethan Hawke is John Brown. It is amazing. I wish it could have went on for a few more seasons, but I understand why it couldn't <laughs> like that. It was just not possible. spoiler alert, not possible. Spoiler alert. What? Um, so there speaking were... of John Brown, yeah. not to interrupt, but, um, <laughs> I believe um, the Abraham Christian Mc Christian from the library, Abraham Lincoln Library, is doing a Facebook chat. This is December third, so I, hopefully it's archived. Um, I'm trying to look up the information as it I'm talking here. If it was Facebook Live, you can just go onto their um, website and see it. Yeah, Christian McWitter. He's talking uh, with H.W. Brands tonight about Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. So you might want to look that up out of the archives of Facebook. And it was done on the night we're recording, which is December 3rd. Sorry to interrupt, Mary. No, don't worry. That's good information for our listeners. Um, So with Bleeding Kansas, you have all this stuff going on with how to admit Kansas into the Union as a state. And one of the things that Buchanan supports is the Lecompton Compromise or compromise sorry constitution um he endorses it the constitution does not pass um but it was drafted by pro-slavery advocates and it has provisions to 
protect slaveholders in the state and exclude its free free blacks from its Bill of Rights. And it was initially approved in December of 1857, um, which shows you how divided things were, um, but defeated in January 1858 by a majority of voters in Kansas Territory. And the reason I was reading it was approved in December 1857 was through some pretty shady circumstances, which is not surprising given the Buchanan administration. Um, yeah, so- just just as one small little yeah. parallel, there was, there was actual real live voter fraud, like like people you know, bringing everybody they knew across the river into Kansas. And, you know, there's, there's, there's some pretty fun, funny, I don't know, it's anti-democratic, I suppose, but um, back in those days, but there was all kinds of people, you know, there's the, the vote actually did surpass the number of eligible voters. Cause like everybody from Missouri <laughs> somehow made it to Kansas and somehow yeah. voted. And it was, you know, of course this, this horribly corrupt, inept, like poorly organized, um, you know, this is what they call evidence of voter fraud because you could, it was actual things that happened as opposed to the giant pile of nothing that is the evidence. Yeah. And so the administration, like the Buchanan administration, not surprisingly, clashes with Stephen Douglas over this and it causes Stephen Douglas to break ties with the Democratic Party. And this is something that figures prominently into, like, Abraham Lincoln. So in her book, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin, she talks about this. And she says that Lincoln at once understood the catastrophic implications for his own political retrospects, or own own political prospects. Furthermore, knowing Douglas as he did, Lincoln believed that his break with the administration was but a temporary squabble over the facts of the situation in Kansas, rather than a change of heart over principle. Once the Kansas matter was settled, Lincoln suspected Douglas would resume his longstanding alliance with pro-slavery Democrats. So this break that Douglas has had with the Buchanan administration, like Lincoln, I mean, I think he's really smart in thinking this way about it, that, you know, this is just a squabble and it's, you know, he's going to change his, like he's going to go back to how he was afterwards. But I get why he's saying like it, could have catastrophic because people might think like oh douglas is going the other way now so we could vote for him over lincoln right because that that is one of lincoln's bigger rivals is stephen douglas and bigger rivals is funny because stephen douglas is what five four tall he's like my height the little giant yeah yep (laughs) that doesn't even make sense the little giant giant. So then that brings us to the 1860 election where you have a divided Democratic National Convention where Douglas is nominated but not accepted by Southerners and then they nominate Breckenridge, which is Yeah, Bukes. Like, Bukes doesn't even get on a ticket. No, because he said in his inaugural address – no, it, it was either his victory speech or his inaugural address. He said, <laughs> I am not running for a second term because that's not the respect like he was like that's not the right thing to do kind of thing and it's like okay dude i don't think politics. See, then, yeah, nobody nobody abides by what they say in their victory speech come on he could he still could have run and i he probably you know i think that the the big difference between him you know because everybody tells the story and, and we i'm sure we're going to get to it but how how thrilled he was to be leaving the white house but a lot of that was because of what happened between November and March more than, than him just really loathing the, the position of president. Yeah. So then, 
So we got the 1860 election, and then you have Buchanan is the last Democrat to win the election under until Grover, the last Democrat to win until Grover Cleveland in 1884. So that's so, something. Is that true? I hope I got that right. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, so interesting things to point out. One, I think that the difference in not just experience as far as resume goes, but just like Buchanan was very much a, a gentleman, right? I mean, he came from the Senate. He was Secretary yeah. of State. He was, you know, obviously in the cabinet, you know, very, you know, his he did. He was. He was a bachelor, um, and very, very likely gay. Um, mm-hmm. But his his first lady was, I believe, his niece, who really, really ran the social scene in Washington in a very, um, you know, is hoity-toity a word? Is that a term? Like it you is know, very posh, yeah. posh. I think is what I'm looking for too. Like real posh. You know, like very much Washington upper crust society kind of. Um, stuff, and then you got Lincoln, who's comes in, you know, with his dirty boots and his and his frontier accent, and you now his, you know, no formal education and, and you know very little experience. So the contrast between the two men are, are is just in, in, in temperament and upbringing, and um, I mean, I know Buchanan was born in the White Cabinet, but he was very, very much ran the White House like like a gentleman, so to speak. So you have a pretty pretty good contrast in personality. Yeah, no, but it's funny that, like, so she's trying to run this very posh thing, yet when Mary Lincoln got to the White House, she said it was, like, really, like, basically in disarray, right? Like, that's why she's got to go out and spend all the money on the, quote-unquote, the flub dubs, you know, because there was, like, stuff that was moldy in there, and they didn't Mm -hmm. have, like, proper carpeting, and the curtains were shit like all this other stuff right so she's having to spend a lot of money to revamp it um so i'm guessing the niece focused more on kind of the social thing and not so much how the white house looked then yeah i would imagine i don't know um i know that she had some really a lot of mean girl uh, if that's an appropriate term uh, Uh type behavior between her and mary lincoln as the transition happened too because um, of course, Mary Lincoln was so unfairly judged still, but then um, as, as how she ran the White House and how she handled the social gatherings. And, you know, I think she very unfairly was looked at as a as a rube from out west, too, uh, even though she was much less so than her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she she's a southerner, right, <laughs> coming into this and, you know, they're. Maybe she's not looked upon as well as other first ladies have been looked upon for for whatever reason. Um, But then you have like, so Buchanan had been an advocate for states' rights as Lincoln's coming into power. So he's been elected and like the, his, the, the guy that's going out of office, Buchanan, he's been an advocate for states' rights. He's minimized the role of the federal government when it comes to slavery. Um, and Ted Widmer in his book, Lincoln on the Verge, um, which has like, he, he talks about the Buchanan administration quite well. Like he just, you know, tells it for what it is. Um, he states that it was very corrupt. That's what he says. It was corrupt. And it was. Um, so after the election, and this is something that, that stuck with me quite a bit when I read this, when I was doing the research, Northerners were jostled and shoved by crowds of angry young men loitering on sidewalks and pro-Southern militias paraded with their weapons. So this is what's happening in D.C. after Lincoln's elected. 
you know, you talk about like that that militia out there on the streets, like that. I mean, we've seen some similar imagery imagery here in America uh, with stuff going on. But I, but another thing I was thinking about when I was doing this and doing research today earlier was our current administration. I think is leaving the White House as a party that believes in ideals that the majority of Americans don't. And I think the Buchanan administration was in the same boat. Um, You know, it it was getting to the point where people were done with slavery and you saw that with how the people respond in the North. And I think we see that with Trump administration. You think of a lot of the political issues that the Republican party is against, you know, there's wide majority appeal for them. And if it's just an issue that's done polling wise, people support it. Mm -hmm. Um, But as soon as you put it in a political context, that's where they get it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like this party trying to save the, you know, the last attempt to save this minority, these minority values. And what I mean by that is that there's not many people who believe in them anymore and trying to hold on to that last thread of hope. Yeah. And I, I agree, Nick. And and where I saw more similarities too, and it's always, it's funny how, um, Ken Burns Civil War documentaries like what eighteen hours long, but there are like like certain lines that just stick in my head more than others. Um, but one of them is uh, you know in the very first episode, the cause. David McCullough, the narrator, is going through like the states are seceding and you know all of these things are happening, and I and I distinctly remember, and, and he says, and, and Ken Burns wrote, and James Buchanan did nothing. And that's where I see a parallel. Like we we're in the middle of a crisis, as was the United States mm-hmm. in 1860, 18, you know, 1860, 1861. Um, and the president is doing nothing, literally nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just basically letting it happen, which yeah. is essentially what Buchanan did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have, I mean, and it's not just like leadership, I mean, like, it's so clearly the economy needs help. People need help. There's a bill that passed the house. Like it takes leadership and all he needs to do is just say, here's what we're going to offer people. Um, It's fairly easy to get his party on this. You know, the foresight to see that this is going to, could be his legacy, like him doing nothing, I think is, is on the, on a similar level to Buchanan doing nothing while the civil war basically started to play out while Lincoln had no power. Yep. There, there is so many similarities to this that I saw in the research I did for this episode. Um, you know, Widmer again, like he was a major source I used for this. He says that, um, the Buchanan administration, um, he said no executive had underperformed quite spectacularly as James Buchanan. And that's especially seen in the last few months, you know, after Lincoln is elected, Buchanan basically shuts down. Like he, yeah, doesn't want to deal with it he's, I, because he he's a like he's a doe face. He's he states rights and he he doesn't know how to deal with what is going on. So I think Lincoln is coming into this much the same way that Biden is. They are both inheriting a crisis. It's a very different crisis, but they're they're both inheriting one. Yeah, and I think that uh, we well, one we need to take a minute to thank thank the powers, thank thank the the old gods and the new that uh, the inauguration is in January instead of March. 
because <laughs> in Lincoln, Lincoln yeah. was inaugurated in March after being elected in yeah. November, which is, is significant when you're looking at what happened between January and March. Um, and the fact that there really wasn't a, an office of the president-elect, whereas now that's, I mean, literally a thing mm-hmm. where, you know, it's a budgeted office with actual titles and positions and there's a transition and he's, you know, and, and the president-elect gets, you know, intelligence briefings and, and all of these things. Um, but still, yeah, Lincoln was not consulted at all. Um, and he was just basically trying to fill fill offices out of, out of Springfield. You know, I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't even leave Springfield um, while all this was going on. So um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. And um, so Henry Adams he is related to Pre- President Adams. He lives in Washington at the time, and he wrote that the government's dysfunction was taking place in Buchanan's body, basically, um, as he had lost any form of initiative, and he soon contra- contradicted himself on rare occasions that he said anything. And again, that reminded me of the current administration, right? It's like up there saying stuff that is he's contradicting himself so this is so sim- like like this 1860 is so similar to now that that's what i'm seeing um and then general winfield scott wanted buchanan um or warned buchanan that lincoln's election would likely cause seven states to secede and he also recommended that federal troops and artillery be deployed to those states to protect federal property and this is ignored by buchanan Um, And it doesn't help that since 1857, Congress has failed to strengthen militia and allowed the army to fall into terrible condition. So they're about um, to go into something not so great when they're about to go into a civil war. And southern forts are ordered reinforced with provisions, arms, and men. But War Secretary Floyd convinces Buchanan to revoke this order. So you can already see that the seeds of, you know, the Civil War are being sown here, you know, and states are going to start seceding soon. Um, And then Lincoln actually does come into it. Um, He says, if that is true, they ought to hang him. And that refers to a rumor that Buchanan had instructed Anderson, who's at Fort Moultrie, to surrender if he's attacked. And Lincoln ends up sending, this is how Lincoln, somehow he's very, he manages to do some stuff behind the scenes. Lincoln sends a message to General Scott through his friend Congressman Washburn that to be prepared at the time of inauguration to either hold or retake the forts as they may may require. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this this is one of those things where it's historical hindsight's like, well, obviously Buchanan should have done this or that. There was no real way. I mean, you know, there's a famous line of, you know, the, the belief that the, the Civil War was going to last a couple of days or a couple of months or whatever. Um, so the idea that he should have shorn up the, the military um, may seem obvious, but but still, like the, the war was on the horizon and he was the commander in chief. And mm-hmm. he could have he could have really started ramping up, you know, just preparedness, not necessarily enlistments, but just like material and. Um, those kinds of things. And, and that, you know, that's one small thing he could have done. Yeah. Um, but I, I know Nick's having some, maybe having some internet issues, he but is. he's, he does a really good, uh, yeah. Nick does a really good job of talking about Stephen Douglas's role in this period, he does. how he was one of, he was, he was, you know, 
he played a big role in actually um, making the transition not as bad, I guess, mm-hmm. as it could have been uh, by working with Democrats, basically being that, you know, um, basically being the humble person who lost the election and um, rallying Democrats around the union cause as much as possible in the North saying that we, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to continue as a country, we've got to, we've got to be together in this. Um, and that was huge, you know, and, and who knows what contributed to it, but he died not long after that. I mean, he was a tireless advocate for the United States. You know, obviously he's got values are in the wrong place. I'm not defending Stephen Douglas because he's not a good person, but in this particular case, he did help. Absolutely. He did. Yeah. And, um, and it's I agree. I'm still here. Okay, I'm still great. here. <laughs> hey, Nicholas is still here. <laughs> I just turned my camera off. Okay. Do you have any further comments he, on that? Now, did you talk about his? Uh, I was diddle dallying, so you might have mentioned this. Uh, did you talk about, or are you going to talk about his um, his administration, Buchanan's administration? Oh, and how, what they how effed up it was. Yeah, and like how have you talked about that yet? <laughs> I haven't. I, I have Howell Cobb. <laughs> next on my list okay then i'll let you go then i'll chime in then okay from there. so howell cobb is treasure like treasury secretary he resigns and he goes back to georgia and this begins a cabinet crisis which uh widmer says after an angry cabinet meeting on december the 29th buchanan more or less less ceases to function so this is when buchanan basically he shuts down um and Buchanan doesn't do much um, with Anderson. And so Anderson takes matters into his own hands and he moves from Fort Moultrie to Fort Sumter. And Buchanan finally tries to send supplies via the Star of the West, but it's fired upon the shore batteries. And we'll get to that in a few minutes as to what happens with that. Like it can't resupply him. Um, But basically you have like this cabinet crisis and there's all these like supplies being sent to the south. They're military supri- supplies being sent to the south, and to kind of reinforce their own forts. And this is something that Sherman actually witnesses when he's at uh, the Louisiana Louisiana Seminary, which later becomes uh, Louisiana State University. Like he actually witnesses um, like all these muskets coming in they've got they had us written on them but that had been scratched off and he never forgot that at all so that's the kind of um corruption that is going on behind the scenes is that people who are on buchanan's cabinet are making it so that the south can have more arms in the upcoming civil war and then uh secretary of war at that time was john floyd from virginia and he's pretty openly doing this stuff, or he'll be pretty open about it after the fact, um, about his disloyalty. Yeah, and he's just moving stuff all over, like you were saying. And then also lining his pockets through crooked land deals at the same time. Yep. And then uh, were you going to talk about the Secretary of Interior, good old Jacob Thompson? No, I will let you do that. Well, he also will resign. He denounced incoming administration. He resigns. He'll become Inspector General of the Confederate Army. In addition to that, he'll end up kind of leading the Confederate Secret Service or what um, their equivalent was. And he'll actually end up in Canada um, and organizes some anti-union plots. And he is suspected of possibly of meeting with uh, 
John Wilkes Booth when he was up there in Canada. I've read so, that story before about him. So that's like three high-level cabinet people, um, basically, who will work for the South and during that transition, doing everything they can to pretty much sabotage uh, Lincoln and his administration, for sure. My country did some shady things in the Civil War, I'm not going to deny it. <laughs> Most of them out of Quebec, not my province. It's mainly in the Montreal area. That was the kind of the Confederate hotbed for it. Um, but there's somebody else that is going to come through for Lincoln in this, and that's Stanton, who he's not mm-hmm. even going to be chosen for Lincoln's cabinet right away, right? It's Cameron that goes into that war. But Stanton at this time is, uh, is he attorney general? Am I getting that right? Yes. For Buchanan? Yes. Um, yep. So he believed there was a danger that existed, that something could happen at Lincoln's inaugural. And at this point he starts to work behind Buchanan's back, which goes against, you know, the oath that Stanton has taken everything else. And he uses Seward as his um, kind of the person that he's talking to about the go between, between the two of them. And, they just kind of, I think they're kind of feeding Lincoln information at this time. Um, but Stanton is one of those people that I think he's helpful in the transition to power for Lincoln with what he's giving to uh, to him at this time with Seward. Yeah, that the Stanton connection kind of surprised me. I don't know how I didn't realize that before. And I'm sure I did at one point, but um, yeah, he was, you know, a powerful Democrat and part of Buchanan's cabinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he came in kind of at the last minute as well. Like he wasn't there from, from the get go because so many of them were, were departing. Um, but it, it's clear that like Lincoln is inheriting um, like an absolute mess. Right. It's, you know, cause so flash forward to March the 3rd, 1861 and this letter comes across Buchan- President Buchanan's desk, and it's basically Anderson saying, Sumter's running low on supplies. You need to resupply me. And Anderson's just like, not my circus, not my monkeys anymore. And on March the 4th, 1861, after Lincoln is inaugurated, that is the first problem he has to deal with. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, no small problem. No, and that's um, like, you know, and again, getting back to, to Stanton, that, that he really feared for Lincoln's inaugural, that if Maryland and Virginia seceded, that the Capitol could easily be attacked. And that's why he's kind of doing all this stuff. Um, but it was clear to me in doing the research for this that, you know, there's a lot of similarities between this, like the current transition of power and Lincoln's trend, like Buchanan to Lincoln transition of power, there's a crisis going on. Um, you have a administration that has been very, very corrupt. And you also have like, now admittedly, like Lincoln, I think he has a lot less, he's getting a lot less information than what Biden is getting. But I think Lincoln is still getting it, but it's kind of like a, you know, underground way, right? How he's getting it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, that's really his only option, because I mean, with, without cooperation and without any official channels, that's kind of how you had to do it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and this is a time in history where things would typically have operated slowly enough where that wouldn't have been as big a deal. Whereas, of course, now in the information age, things are accelerated quite a bit. Um, the transition from one president to another, even one party to another, you know, wasn't quite as, um, you know, the urgent, I guess. The needs weren't quite as urgent, really, for any transitions of presidents um, up to this point, up to the point in 1860. Um, but, but I think it is... It's it's worth pointing out that is you know, and it sounds like a cliche, but I don't believe it is at all. When people say the bedrock of a democracy is the peaceful transition of power, because that's very much the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you see things like, um, you know, Vladimir Putin, for example, was no longer the president of Russia because of term limits, or I, I think it was term limits. Anyway, he was no longer the president, so he became the prime minister when Medvedev uh, butchered that. You know, as president, but of course Putin's mm-hmm. acting president. And then he, be, so like, there's no transfer of power there. Like he, you know, he's no longer the president, but it's clear he still has the power. And you can go on and on and on about how um, the will of the people has been overturned in in very difficult, you know, despotism, you know, dictator situations. Um, but when you look at real times of crisis, the the peaceful transition of power is is when is where there's strain put on it and that's where it's challenged you know i mean i think going from you know um like reagan to bush or bush to clinton Mm -hmm. you know that's not a huge you know it's great that we have a peaceful transition of power but that's not nearly as noteworthy as um as the current situation we're in now where we're facing a crisis and one of the outgoing leader is claiming what he's claiming this is where we really put that to the test I think 1860, there was never a threat to that transition of power, but the lack of cooperation and the lack of action on Buchanan's part threatened it. And it really, I mean, arguably wasn't a peaceful transition of power because if it was, because there were all of the states in the Confederacy didn't transfer power to Abraham Lincoln, even though that they, even though they were constitutionally bound to, they decided they weren't. That wasn't a transfer of power for them. They, they were, they were under no obligation to do that. Um, so it wasn't a peaceful, obviously not at all a peaceful transfer of power because they had to go to war to get it back. Yep, I, I totally agree with that. Nick, any thoughts? No, I, I think Boyce brings up a good point there. I mean, for sure. Um, you know, going back to, it's really this, you know, one of the reasons why Buchanan's at the bottom of the dustpin um, is because of how he handled this four months or whatever it was at that time. Um, between, you know, the election and the presidency, the fact that he did nothing. And now we're seeing that with, with Trump, you know, and just a lack of, for both of them of just doing nothing in front of a major crisis. Mm-hmm. Like, just to completely sit on your hands and not do anything and just completely turn the other cheek is unbelievable. And then at least, and when then you throw in 2020 on the fact that he's trying to basically undermine our basic pillar of American democracy, the election process itself, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me um, that that's happening. And I think that's why, at the end of the day, Buchanan will now longer be on the bottom of the dustbin. I think it's going to be Trump um, on top of how he's handled this transition and some of the other things he's done, um, unfortunately. And I, I just don't see how it's any other way. Um, to be honest with all that. And 
it's just disappointing. I think uh, one thing that Lincoln had going for him a little bit more than what Biden um, does is by the time Lincoln does get there, yes, he's had states succeed. I think, you know, what crisis is worth, COVID, civil war, you know what I mean? Biden is not inheriting a country that is actively fighting itself um, as far as the war is concerned. But Lincoln did have the luxury of something, you know, the fact that all the Southerners left. So he did have a coalition in Congress there um, that he could use as support. His challenge was to keep the party together in a lot of cases. And he did have to worry about some of the Democrats. Don't get me wrong. But Biden, man, the political, you know, theatrics he's going to have to go to to keep the party together and find a way to get something through with Republicans is that is I don't even know, man. No, I think in some ways he is facing more challenges than what Lincoln did, right? You know, because... Different challenges, maybe, I would, maybe, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely different challenges. Like, both are go, both go into this, you know, Lincoln went into it with challenges, no doubt. I mean, imagine you've just been inaugurated and you get to your office and there's a letter there from Anderson saying, I'm going to run out of supplies, you need to figure this out. Yeah, and you know, another thing, too, with Lincoln, Lincoln evolved, too, because I think Lincoln came in where he wanted to, you know, what were his true intentions and stuff like that. But, you know, I, he definitely evolved with yeah. the times is that. It's going to be interesting to see how far Biden evolves with things. Because I do think we're at kind of the choice then was slavery versus no slavery. Yep. You know, one side's morally correct. Right now, I think we face a division of this idea of make America great again and kind of the and then Black Lives Matter and aware kind of the two sides. And I believe one side is morally correct, the Black Lives Matter side. Um, And then does he evolve Biden along the same lines Lincoln does? I don't know. Yeah, it it will be interesting to see how that all plays out. You know, it's I mean, because it's. They're both going into this facing a crisis. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, Nick, you make a great point, and I don't think it can be understated. And I, well, I should say this, I don't believe you overstated it at all. And I think some people are inclined to feel that, to say, like, you can't compare enslavement to make America great again. And I say, like, they're one and the same. Um, that, that, that whole movement make America great again, this resurgence of white nationalism is a ripple effect is a, you know, is, is still based on our legacy of enslavement and black lives matter is still a repercussion of the abolitionist movement, which became the civil rights movement, which became social justice, whatever you want to call it. It's the same fight and and the sides of history are going to be the same. And you can look at any era, the 1950s and sixties, People filibustering against the Civil Rights Bill, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was struck down by the Supreme Court like three years ago. Like these are not different fights. They're the Mm -hmm. same fight that this country has been facing since its inception, abolition to civil rights to now. Um, And I think history is going to look at people the same way that it looks at like how we look at Stephen Douglas and how we look at um, Confederates. And everything else, like people will revere them when they're clinging to this white nationalism, white supremacy, and people will in history will look at them as the as who they are. 
you know, as, as what that means. I absolutely agree with that. But it's easy to say that, oh, come on, enslavement is much worse. Well, of course it's much worse. But if you look at it as, you know, branches of the same tree, which I don't think is a stretch at all, um, I think you see it. So, yeah, I, I could see, Nick, some people saying like, oh, come on, you can't compare people who voted for Trump the same way you can compare people who voted for Buchanan or McClellan or people who supported you know, it's just where they were from. They were just from the South. I Yes, you can. I believe you absolutely can. And I think that's how history can and should judge this era. Agreed. Yes, nicely stated. Are there any other final thoughts or are we wrapping up the transition? Are we transitioning out of the transition? I think we're transitioning out of the transition. All right, to one of our two weekly features, By the People, For the People, <laughs> written by the people. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Of what the you people, got? by the people? Yeah, For the People, the By the People. shall not perish from this podcast. That's right. I've got one. Go for it. Okay, so mine is one of our listeners, Jim Miller. He was breaking out his Christmas Lincoln Christmas ornaments, and he's got them posted on the Real Sweater Facebook yeah. page. He's got some pretty, nice. pretty awesome ornaments there. He's got like like one of Lincoln and then one of Lincoln with a like Lincoln the real splitter, I think it like Lincoln boyhood is what it is. Um Mary Todd Lincoln House. <laughs> um Lincoln Log Cabin and then one from Hodgenville, Kentucky. So that's pretty cool. Dude, we should have made a, a rail splitter ornament. We should have. All right, holiday 2021, holiday yep. season 2021. Yep. Pay attention for the rail splitter. We'll replace the rail splitter face mask, hopefully, with the rail splitter oh, holiday ornament. Because, yes. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully you will not need that face mask anymore. Yeah. Um, unless you're unless you're like doing work in an attic or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine's uh, kind of stupid. I don't know if it's, it would even count for other people by the people. But um, I am reading Barack Obama's book, and he does talk about Lincoln. A handful of times it's it's a very it's i'm half just over halfway through and it's 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 amazing it's a nice peek into the oval office and the presidency and um how those decisions are made so that's good if you're a lincoln fan or a fan of the presidency Uh, but he does talk about um abraham lincoln a lot at least so far in the first half but the one thing that stuck out to me was he talks about how um he found it difficult or interesting or, or, or a quandary to balance um, how people have done really horrible things literally right next to the Lincoln bedroom with a copy of the Gettysburg Address in his own hand. Um, and he, he did a nice job of kind of painting that picture of this really incongruous setting of, of past presidents doing shitty things next literally with a wall separating them from where Lincoln's left and where the Gettysburg Address is. So I thought that was pretty cool. Awesome. That is. that is. It's on my uh, read list for sure. All right. Promise? Promise? See what I did there? Promise. It's called the Promised Land. I was not aware of that. I didn't know what was going <laughs> on there. Um, all right. You know what? I kind of brought up to Christian McWitter earlier. 
Uh, so I'm going to go with a non-Lincoln related for the second one, but Canadian related. Oh. Um, uh, the wrestling legend, one of the greatest minds out of the industry, Pat Patterson, passed away. Um, if you wrestling fans, I know we have a couple diehard wrestling fans, I believe, who listen. You know who I'm talking about. Um, he was a fantastic wrestler, and he was a brilliant mind behind the industry, behind some of the greats, The Rock, Stone Cold, Mick Foley, and everybody was giving him shout-outs yesterday or the memory of Pat Patterson. So rest in peace, a Canadian wrestling legend, I believe. I hope I'm right on that. But I'm pretty sure he's from Montreal out of that area. So um, he is definitely on a Canadian wrestling Mount Rushmore. Thank you, Nick. I had no idea that he was. But thank you. (laughs) With with Bret Hart. Bret Hart would also be on that. Definitely Bret Hart. Yeah, definitely. He's got to be like a national hero, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, I think he's from he's from Ontario. I think he's from Mississauga area, which is near Toronto. The family's big in Calgary, I know, too. Yeah. Bret Hart. I hope so. I'm getting that right about him being from the Toronto. You know what? He's probably not from the Toronto area. I probably just got that all wrong. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't the screw job in wasn't it in Montreal? That was in Montreal. The screw job was in Montreal. Yeah. Um, a very famous, um, really kind of a turning point in wrestling history for sure. Because that led to Bret Hart pretty much leaving. Well, that was when he left the WWF and that led to the rise of the attitude era. Without that, you probably don't have stone cold, Steve Austin. And without stone cold, you probably don't have the rock. And without the rock, (laughs) you wouldn't have a modern day. you You don't have Moana. And, and you know what? There'd be a lot of kids sad about yeah. that. Yeah, you, maybe they wouldn't know what it was, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> what is our This Week in Lincoln? I got it. Um, so This Week in Lincoln, if I can follow, oh, man, it's going to take me a minute. Um, I believe it was yesterday uh, that uh, on, and again, I think this kind of goes along with very, very much with what Lincoln said, or what Lincoln says. Congratulations, Nick. I was thinking of you and said Lincoln. What Nick said about a Canadian legend, um, who I would argue is a bigger legend, arguably the biggest Canadian legend, at least now, or at least compared to wrestlers, Alex Trebek, um, who is a uh, you know has a special place in a lot of our hearts, especially those of us who enjoy trivia. But anyway, Final Jeopardy in one of Alex Trebek's last episodes, uh, which I believe was today, uh, December third. This was the clue for Final Jeopardy. Uh, in 1858, these two men faced each other in Alton, Freeport, Galesburg, and four other nearby towns. Which the reason that this is interesting to me is because this could not be any easier for any link. Anybody who listens to this show, anybody who's <laughs> any any level of Lincoln fan, this this literally like this is easier than like naming your own children. Like who are your children or this? Like that's about so like I'm like okay, this might be the easiest question of all time. One person. Out of the three, got it correct. What? The incorrect. The, yes, one contestant out of three what? got it correct. The other, the incorrect answers were Lee and Grant. <laughs> why the hell? Why? So what? Why the hell would Lee and Grant debate? Unless you, unless like they have a really aggressive debate style <laughs> over seven days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So that to me is interesting. Just like what would Lee and Grant debate about? Like who could take the bigger risks? I don't. I don't know. And the other the other guess was Wyatt Earp and Doc Hollywood. Again, why would they debate each other? At least throw some politicians out there. But anyway, uh, the correct answer, of course, was uh, Buchanan and no, I'm kidding. Uh, the correct answer, of course, Lincoln and Douglas, and my birth city, Freeport, was on there. Um, the other four towns? Now, they're, they're, now, that's a question. Elton, Freeport, Galesburg, and four other nearby towns, nearby arguable. Yeah. Well, you, got Char- you, got, you got Charleston. <laughs> uh, what else? Alton's on there. Galesburg's on there. Freeport's on there. What's uh? Where's uh? Eastern at? Charleston. Okay, that's right. I used to have uh, these memorized just in case this came up in a trivia thing. Quincy, Quincy, and then this is a lot easier for Nick and I because we're Illinoisans. Yeah, um, we should know. I feel embarrassed. I can't. I or used to know, but they, they did. Obviously, Freeport's a lot easier for us because it's very, very close. Um, By the way, is the, no. what are the other four towns? Seems oh, like Ottawa. More... God, I've been to the one in Ottawa a yeah. hundred times. Oh, I also Ottawa, have been to one in Ottawa. Ottawa and Jonesboro were the other two. Oh. So Freeport, have... Ottawa, Galesburg, Quincy, Charleston, Alton, and Jonesboro. Jonesboro's way south. Freeport's way north. Uh, Quincy, Alton, way west. Charleston, east. In Galesburg and Ottawa, North Central. Yeah, it's that's an easy Final Jeopardy question. I feel like. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I, me too. See, but I'm always I'm always off on that because I always think like anything Lincoln oriented is like super easy because I know it. So yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like sometimes like Nick, you could ask me a wrestling question. Like Pat Patterson could have been an answer to a trivia question that I would have been like, I have no idea. And any wrestler, wrestling fan would be like, dude, you're an idiot. That's He's on Mount Rushmore, apparently. Oh, or, Canadian. Or the Canadian. A Canadian. Whatever Mount the Rushmore. Canadian version of that is. Yeah. It's yeah. close to Canada. One of my one colleagues, of one time, one of the, uh, she approached me and she's like, so Final Jeopardy last night was to do with the Civil War. And it was something to do with the Battle of Gettysburg. And it was to do with the commanding generals there. And she had said that her, she's like, so my husband guessed that it was General Grant, but he was wrong who were the commanding generals there? And I said, Meade and General Lee. <laughs> and then she was like, oh, okay, he thought just Grant, because that was the only one he knew. Yeah. But, I mean, Canadian. But see, everybody, like, I, I bet if you polled anybody with a passing knowledge of the Civil War, Grant would be a more, would be probably a more common answer than Meade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think they the call that was in the, the trivia. Union commander, and she said yeah. Grant. And then she was like, who's this Meade guy? And I'm like, do you have an hour? <laughs> yeah. In the trivia world, they call that neg bait, where you're like baiting somebody into like a common negative answer. Yeah. Because, um, you know, everybody's going to say Grant, but you either know it or you don't. It's definitely not Grant. All right. That is the show. Any final thoughts? Nope. I thought that Stay was. Stay safe good. out there. Yeah. There was. I... Uh, one thing I liked, I don't know if it's enough by the people or whatever, but uh, a local person in our community died from COVID and the family chose in his obituary to say, please wear a fucking mask. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I thought that was brilliant, brilliant addition to yeah. any obituary. So I, I um, would, my, my parting thought would be wear a fucking mask so that we can get yes. back to normal. 
Because well, if, 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 if you're conflicted about it, that message came from someone whose dad died mm-hmm. from COVID. So wear, wear your mask. Yep, I don't believe it's wearing. There was a four-year-old who died in my region. Yeah. Who was he was oh, no. he he wore his mask, um, you know. And there's outbreaks at a major, like the big hospital, about an hour from me, and it's just it's really sad. But just please wear a mask. It's yeah. Not I. I can tell you right now that at my job, I wear one for seven hours a day. And that's out of respect for my coworkers and the people I work with and just because it's policy. And you know what? I found some masks on the red, bu- red bubble. I got the, the kid size ones, uh, like the 13, 14 year old age range. They're so comfortable. And I got civil war masks and I wear them and I don't mind. Cause I, you know, it's, it's not about me. Right. Correct. Yep. So with that final thought, I don't swear, so remember, wear a thick. <laughs> Fuck ever, Nick. <laughs> make, make sure, make sure you wear that damn mask. Um, mask of a damn, I mean. So I'm not really swearing there. Uh, no, but thank you for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So remember, with malice toward none and with charity for all. See y'all next Booyah. week <laughs> or Dumb next beast. time.